Hey there, I'm Chris Connor, your host for CC Life Science, where I'm exploring the use of artificial intelligence in life science from discovery to the clinic and anything else that captures my curiosity. But today is all about AI with some use cases, as well as some guidance on wrangling multiple AI projects within one company. So let's jump right into it. All right, I have with me today Chris Steele. He is the Senior Director for Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning at IQVIA. Chris, welcome. Thank you, Chris. Welcome to yourself. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, today we're going to talk in a broad sense about how AI can be used to answer specific questions, but also how to wrangle and manage multiple AI initiatives across an organization. And of course, because I have this expert with me, we're going to talk about ChatGPT. Um, because it's, everybody wants to know whatever they can find out. So let's start with this. So for context, describe for the folks who don't know what IQVIA is, um, what your business is, who your customers are in the sense of broadly. Sure. So IQVIA is the result of the merger between IMS Health and Quintiles. So for those of you in the healthcare industry, you probably recognize Quintiles name one of the leaders in clinical trials. Um, on the other hand, IMS Health was one of the leaders in healthcare data and analytics. So combined, we really supply the pharma industry with clinical trials and all of the analysis of data around that. So we really categorize ourselves as molecule to market. Once a, a pharma is ready to uh, bring a drug um, to the cl clinical trial process, will help you know get them set up you know do site selection really take them through the whole trial process once it's been through then we'll help market it so looking at uh, price points and in, in different countries and competitors and all of those things we do a, a really wide range of analytics yeah so you have a pretty broad view, as you say, from molecule to market of the entire landscape of the pharmaceutical industry, at least, and maybe the healthcare industry entirely. Right. So what was your task when you came on board? So I was brought on back in late 2017 by our CTO to really help wrangle all of our AI efforts around the organization and to begin to drive AI and machine learning into all of our products. So that is the goal, really, to AI enable everything we do um, in terms of automation, better analytics, you know, faster, cheaper, all of that. And if you look at IQVIA, we're a very siloed organization. We have you know, many different groups and um, what we discovered was there's actually a, a ton of different groups that were working on various AI-related projects, but they hadn't been communicating. So one of, one of my big tasks was to put together a virtual team and pull together all the different leaders across the organization and get them talking about what they're doing with AI ML. And so, you know, through that process, we've helped to deduplicate a lot of the efforts that were going on. We've helped standardize on our internal AIML platforms and really, you know, 
most importantly is help unifying the message that we're giving our clients. Uh, one of the things that was readily apparent when I first joined was that, you know, we're one of the most, you know, technologically advanced companies out there, and yet nobody's even heard of what we've been doing with AI and ML. So that's been a big challenge as well. Yeah, so you've been doing this for a while. I'm going to say that when I started this podcast a year ago, and it's just based on my curiosity about how AI is being used and looking at posts on LinkedIn, my impression was that a lot of companies had small AI initiatives. In fact, I think it was my first one of my first guests, Seb uh, McLaughlin, and he was talking about you know companies weren't doing enough in the sense of they would do these small pilot projects, but they never went anywhere. And now, I mean, I think everybody certainly at least have had their eyes open if the actual state of things was farther along than you would have thought a year ago. Now everybody goes, oh my gosh, AI, we're all talking about it every day. And clearly you're using it. Um, you're not testing anymore. You're, you're in it. Right. We are in it. We're delivering solutions. We've got seven large internal platforms. We've got a data lake that back in 2018, anyway, we, we were pulling in more transactions than Google, uh, believe it or not. So we've got, uh, you know, somewhere, you know, between 30 and 40 petabytes of data under governance. So yeah, we've got huge amounts of data. We've been using AI and ML, you know, at all stages of the data pipeline. So if you think of our you know, 15,000 plus different providers uh, bringing in, you know, all of this data, uh, just mapping that into a structured format requires a, a large AI model to help us out. We do, we use that for our mappers to be able to, you know, build those ETL pipelines. We, uh, we've got, uh, I can't even, well over 200 different projects that are, you know, either in production or in flight uh, with, you know, very sophisticated models. Uh, we've tended to weed out, we don't even really track the, just the regular machine learning models anymore. It's really more of the, the complex deep learning models. All right, so I'm going to ask you about the range of questions that you're answering with AI, but I have to back up for a second. How many zeros go on to a terabyte to get a petabyte? <laughs> is, is that the next order of a thousand, or is it even beyond that? It, 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 it's the next order of a thousand, so it's basically, okay. yeah, a thousand. It's a thousand terabytes. Mm -hmm. Got it. All right, so uh, tell us about just – a sense of the range of questions you are trying to answer for your customers with AI? Uh, again, it, you know, it really varies. Um, we do everything. If I, if I think back to sort of um, the, the early stages within the cycle, um, site selection, right? So finding out you, you want to start a, a trial process. Um, you know, what are, what are the best sites? Um, given, given your drug, given, um, you know, all the demographics of the various areas, uh, past performance, all of those things. So, you know, doing site selection, building cohorts, you know, 
huge, you know, many models around that. Um, and then moving into uh, commercial, looking at uh, providing analyses around what is the proper price point for this particular drug in this market, given the current uh, current competitors and, and vendor landscape. Uh, you know, what are we, we also look at uh, what are all the different drug sales across all of uh, the, the different uh, providers out there. So you think of like the, the CVS, it was the Walgreens of the world, not, not just the U.S., but of the world. You know, we help uh, track and estimate, you know, what the sales are on a weekly basis so that pharma can use that to, um, you know, to help uh, help with their, their reps, uh, Gauge performance, you know, reimbursements, those types of things. Yeah, so that's fascinating. I'm always learning a little bit more about the healthcare system. Pricing, of course, is interesting. And then, you know, even the demographics of site selection, um, if you're going to do a test, a clinical trial, you, the first challenge is finding the people who need what you think you're going to be testing and having data around those populations and, and centers that are effective at doing the test because those are two separate things. Right. <laughs> yeah, very important. All right, so um, talk about, I mean, I guess this is a half-formed question. So how is it different than some advanced analytics to say we know there are a bunch of, you know, that this demographic is concentrated or there are concentrations of this demographic in a certain area and more um, in a predictive answer. And like I said, this is half formed based on my enough knowledge to be dangerous sort of status. <laughs> right. So um, if you think about traditional, uh, more statistical analysis, right, with when you're taking these large amounts of data, um, sort of looking at all these different features that go into that selection. Um, in order to do the statistical analysis, it requires a lot of understanding between the relationships of those, those pieces of data, right? Um, that, that requires domain experts with experience and, and knowledge um, versus a deep learning model um, for instance, which can go in and learn what the relationships are. Um, it makes it, it makes it faster to be able to, it's faster to build that model than to do the, the analysis in the traditional ways. And what we found is often it's just more uh, precise. It's more efficient. It's just more um, time, you know, time to market wise, it's a lot faster. So, which also brings up a good point because there have been cases where we found where, you know, a lot of that extra precision wasn't necessary and it wasn't cost effective. So we would fall back to more uh, traditional means just because it does cost a lot to train these large models and, and you know, it, it takes some time. So. It's, it's a balance. And, uh, you know, the great part is we've got over 6,000 data scientists and, you know, they are, you know, best of breed. And, you know, this has been nothing but a helpful tool for them. 
Wow. Okay. So let's go into some specific examples. Um, for example, and I think this came up a little bit. I did a podcast a few weeks ago with um, Judge Schneider from Nashville Biosciences, but um, you have data on people with diagnostic codes, for example, that kind of follow them through their journey, but what they're originally coded as may not be, it turns out, the exact right thing. And so there's some hands-on expertise that requires that's required there. But let's talk about the challenge of identifying people with rare diseases. I mean, those are the ones that, you know, diagnosis is difficult to begin with. But what are the other factors that make that a challenge? Well, most of the rare disease, well, I don't want to say most, a lot of rare diseases in patients go undiagnosed. So we struggle with how do you determine um, the population that actually has a disease, um, but it's been undiagnosed. One of our struggles with rare diseases is generally we don't have a lot of data um, to, to feed these, uh, these large models. You know, the, the data sets are unbalanced, right? You have a, a large normal population, but a very small positive population um, just because you know, it is a rare disease by definition. So what we did, one of our data scientists went out and built a synthetic data generator to generate that positive population. And then we were able to use that to train the model, which went in and identified um, a population of people that we believed had that rare disease that had gone undiagnosed. So a lot of really interesting work so, yeah, that has also come up on a very early episode about generating, um, it slipped my mind now, um, synthetic, synthetic, yeah, data. So, and in that case, you're, why do you need synthetic data when you already have a massive normal population? What is, well, why so, is that? So you, in the case of rare diseases, you have a massive normal population, but you have a small positive population. In order for the model to um, be most efficient, you need to balance out those two data sets, the, the normal with the positive. So we needed to increase the size of the positive population. And that's where the synthetic data came in. We were able to, to take and generate a you know, much larger synthetic data set of that positive population that we could then combine with the normal population to feed into the predictive model. Okay. So yeah, I misheard it the first time I was thinking about it wrong. Naturally you want to balance them out. So you're making the positive thing, but how do you know? So my next question is how do you know what that data of a positive thing looks like when you're still trying to figure out what an actual patient with that rare disease looks like? So, yeah, that, that's an interesting question, would require a very long answer. But the, the synthetic data model, right, is a generative model. So it takes that smaller subset of positive um, the people, you know, that tested positively that we know have the disease, right? And it looks at all those characteristics and it understands relationships. And then it's able to generate a larger population that shares those characteristics. And I, 
can't go into all the math and stuff, but we can go back and statistically look and improve and actually see the empirical results as the predictive model to understand that, yes, you know, it, it's actually generating, you know, what, what looks like, what replicates that, uh, that positive population. All right. So uh, you're, so you have enough data to have the model sort of know what those characteristics are. And then you're expanding that out to balance it against a normal population. And then that is used in some way to be able to find the people that we're not sure about based on the fact that there are enough in the synthetic population, it somehow learns a little bit more and gets better at finding the undefined people with that rare Right, right. You, you use that, that generative model for the synthetic data, and then you use that in, to create the data sets that you feed into your predictive model that's going to predict whether or not somebody has that rare disease based on all those, um, all, all their features. Got it. Okay. So how do you measure the accuracy or the impact of that? Uh, how, how well does it identify those people with incorrect or uncertain diagnoses? So obviously you have to do extensive testing. So just like with any type of data science project, you know, you reserve a, a test and validation set. So those are sets that, that aren't touched that we know, you know, here are the individuals we know that, that have that disease. And then we'll go and run them through the model uh, along with the uh, cohort that doesn't have the disease. And then we can just get a, a simple mathematical uh, estimate of precision and accuracy. I got it. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you're just testing against known data sets that weren't used in the development of the model. Correct. All right. So chat GPT, everybody's probably the word of the year at the end of 2023. Um, what, what do we need to know about that? I mean, uh, it's another sort of predictive model. Everybody's getting their hands on it, but maybe not everybody is aware of what it can do, what it should do, and what it probably shouldn't be used for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I think everybody is in the investigative stage right now. Um, we certainly are. So um, a lot of different things to think about. Um, on one hand, we're, we're looking hard at where can we use this? This is, this is a new capability. It, it's a new technology. Um, and we think it's going to open up a lot of business cases for us. We think it, there, there's going to be uh, a number of different benefits that we can derive from this. Um, at the same time, we're also really just starting to learn about a lot of the security and, and privacy concerns. So um, as uh, I've been discussing earlier, one of the issues that a lot of people I don't think are aware of is that in the, the open version that you probably used um, out there from OpenAI, you know, those, your, your prompts, your questions that you're asking it are fed into the model and that model retains that information. So somebody can come along and they could ask it, 
um, a question about what people have asked it and your your question itself, you know, that text could show up in their answer. So you you have this real issue around trying to understand, you know, what what data am I giving by asking questions and setting up the context and what, you know, what of that data can and will be shared with other users. Um, that becomes a real big concern when you start thinking of some of the use cases where people are actually feeding it data. So if you're unaware that that data could be shared and you're, you're giving it a large amount of data to maybe to help, uh, help, help it uh, derive a program for you, some code, or maybe just to do some simple analysis, um, you know, that's great, but that data then might actually show up in raw form in somebody else's answer. So how do we protect against that? As a business, when we're moving forward and we're looking at some of these other providers, one of the things that we want to understand are, are one, you know, what are, what are you, the provider, what are you recording in terms of the prompts? Um, so we don't want any of our questions uh, being recorded and used um, you know, by these cloud providers. Uh, two, you know, how is that data shared among the users? In other words, you know, we're going to require our own isolated instance. Do we require you know, more than one instance based on you know, level of data security? Are, do we have groups and say uh, an R and D that are you know going to be providing you know some some raw data that we don't want groups and marketing and communication and finance to see? Um, so we're really we're you know in the midst of, of battling through that. Um, I think initial steps are really limiting access. So you know the the first step a lot of companies I think are going to take is to create proxies and, and limit access and require people to provide um, a reason why they need to use this and then, you know, support that through a business case, be able to justify the cost because that's another big area. You know, the cost can really grow. I don't know uh, if you've signed up for the, the, the actual version from OpenAI, but, uh, you know, those numbers, the, number of tokens you get um, for that monthly fee isn't that great. And you can you know, quickly go beyond same with the cloud providers. Um, it's not a cheap model to use. So you want to really be careful about who's using it and for what purpose. And then also ensure that you're training the people that are going to use it. They have to understand data privacy, data leakage, and all these areas that we've been talking about. Yeah, I mean, you and I... Uh before we started recording, we're talking about, you know, the other cautions around being a confident liar. And, you know, I asked it for some papers and references, and I looked at every one of those references, which every one of them looked beautifully legitimate. <laughs> and I tried to search for that exact reference on the web. No, not one of them existed. Um, and then also some other just what would appear to be confident knowledge that I knew was wrong. The one thing you mentioned there is the expense. I only have the free version, um, but I can imagine why it gets expensive. Can you explain to me, I mean, when I get a Google search back in a fraction of a second, 
I'm thinking, you know, it's indexed all this and it can quickly find it. But how does a system, and I'm guessing this is some part of the expense, as soon as I finish or hit send on my prompt, and I'm guessing it's reading ahead, I don't know, <laughs> it starts spitting out words that make sense. And I'm going, how does it do that so fast? It's not because it's compiling sensible language, not just pulling items off the shelf that it's indexed already. Right. Yeah, that, that's a great question. So you, you really have to understand the difference uh, between uh, model types and um, like with, with your Google search or your, your Bing search. You know, these, these engines, um, they go out and they use MapReduce to put together, you know, common words, phrases, you know, search terms. And so the results are really already calculated. It's really, you know, that, that fast response is basically a lookup um, versus when you're using GPT-3, GPT-4, any large language model like that. It's a generative algorithm. It's taking your question and it's generating text um, and, and that text is all tokenized. So as it's generating it, it's generating the next part. And due to the size of, of the, the model itself, et cetera, um, what we think of as inferencing, you know, answering your question is, is actually a very compute heavy process. It is yeah. putting those words together as it goes. So um, in the free version, like when you, if you ask it to, you know, write you a short story or something, you see that you're, you're getting those back, those, if you think of those words and the groups of words as, as tokens, it's really looking at each of those and generating the next one based on what it's generated before. So it, it's, it's not a lookup, it's generating as it goes. Right, which I, I presume that's what requires massive amounts of computing power, which just stuns me that for free I can get <laughs> access to. Someone's paying for it to generate those words for all of us. But anyway, it, it, the speed of computation boggles my mind. Yeah, it is. Um, and that's why it's really restricted to you know some of the, the tech behemoths at the moment because they're really the only ones that can afford to train these models in the first place. So if you think of the cost of, of inferring, uh, generating your responses, think of the amount of compute time that it took to be able to train these models. You know, it, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. For sure. All right, let's circle back to the original challenge. You come on board and there are multiple AI projects going on in different parts of the company. I think this was an interesting story. Like, how did you get people to raise their hand and say, hey, I've got a project when I think everybody will understand that people can be protective of their projects because they feel like it might be taken away from them. <laughs> you know, that, that was a, that's a great question. Um, and the, the secret I learned early on was competition. So I went out and I asked people to share all about their projects. And um, I didn't get a lot of responses. I, I, I got some guarded answers, et cetera. So what I did was I took all those, I put them together in a shared spreadsheet. And then in the virtual team that I've mentioned where we have all these leaders from across those, 
I plopped up the spreadsheet and I said, here's what people are doing. And look, you know, this, this team is doing this and this team is doing that. You know, these guys are the leaders. And suddenly, right after that, as you can imagine, everybody starts dumping all of their fraudulent economy. Um, a lot of them we had to sort of weed out because they actually weren't really AI uh, ML related. But yeah, turn it into a competition and then people are, are willing to share a lot more. If you tell a scientist that someone else has a better idea, you're going to get everything they know. That's, <laughs> that's the punchline right there, man. <laughs> Chris Steele, this has been a treat to talk to you. I've learned a ton about AI and how it's used in, you know, cross healthcare and in the pharma industry. Thank you so much for your time. Chris, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Okay, friends, I hope you're having as much fun with these as I am. If so, please share the podcast with your colleagues. They'll enjoy it also. In addition to being fun, these recorded conversations are an easy way to create content for marketing and thought leadership. The podcast is not the end product. It's the raw material for a collection of content assets, including audio, video, and text for your web and social channels, as well as sponsored content on third-party media sites. If you want to know more about how that works, there's a link to my calendar in the show notes. That's all for now. Bye-bye.